I try to stay disciplined to my, what I think are the central keys of my case. And if it's not related to that, then I'm not going to try to spend much time with any on it. You're listening to Best Practices with Kenny Berger. On this podcast, we talk with the country's top trial lawyers about their approaches to every aspect of practice, from case selection to closing argument. Welcome to Best Practices with Kenny Berger. We're actually, for the second time only, doing part two, a follow-up episode for one of our guests. All our guests have been fantastic. Uh, This is an opportunity, though, to speak with Andy Abraham, for a second time. And and today we're going to be looking specifically at some things Andy did in a recent trial that returned an excellent verdict. So Andy, welcome back. Thank you very much, Kenny. I appreciate it. And of course you are in up in Boston, Massachusetts. I am. But your your reputation is already now making its way to South Carolina and and far beyond. Thanks to you. Uh, Thanks to you. In fact, I saw one more thing. You're not only it's not only reputation, but you're helping people, lawyers like me and lots of others, uh, with the work you're doing in Massachusetts. You were kind enough to circulate uh, an order this morning um, concerning diffusion tensor imaging that immediately got sent from my listserv email address to my work email address and saved to a DTI folder. So thank you for that, Mr. Abraham. No problem at all. That was a great decision. It was actually the judge saw through the defense uh, mirage, the smoke. So yeah. Good. And that that smoke that that he saw through is thick. I mean, that's thick, complicated smoke he saw or something tells me that you were a helpful guide in leading someone through the mirage. It, it, it can get complicated. The defense has stuff that sounds, uh, especially the white paper, it sounds scientific. It just isn't. And so it's, it you know, like a lot of good pseudoscience, it, it sounds really authoritative and you know, but we were able to poke a hole in it. I mean, the easiest thing from lawyers is that I think that was a decision, if I remember right, was 67 throughout the country. So that's a that's an easy thing to understand. The junk that they talk about and the misdirection that they create in attacking DTIs does take a lot. I encourage anyone that faces a challenge, and we say this at every AAJ, TBI, T-Bilge seminar and meeting, contact me. There's There's five or six lawyers throughout the country that can really help you. Um, and we don't, I haven't charged, probably should, but I haven't, I haven't charged yet. Um, we're not looking, we're looking to keep our record pristine. We're not looking to take your case or to charge you, but we have a lot of documents uh, and, and experts that can help you navigate those, those choppy waters. And, you know, if you feel that you need to bring someone in, then that's, you know, we're available, but that's not the primary purpose of what we're doing. So. Yeah, y'all have, it's just, it's been a, a tremendous vanguard and, and resource and frontline defense. So, so thank you, my friend. All right, let's talk this trial. Give us the give us the quick overview. What's the what's the thirty second or one minute version? What the case was all about? If I were explaining it to a lawyer, is much different than what I was explaining to a jury. And it was not a brain injury trial. It was a it was a spinal. My guy was fused at eleven different levels, both cervical and lumbar. But to me, how I explain it to the jury, and I, you know, I have a theory on opening statements that I, I suggest. I, and Lazarus from uh, he's with Greg Cusimano's group. He really got me thinking this way. And but I, you know, the opening statement for me is, and I, I should test this one of these days as opposed to just assuming it. But if you ask a jury after their opening statement what the case is about, their answers are going to give you a very good insight in whether or not you have a chance to win. So. I didn't do this in the real jury. You don't let you do this in a real jury. But my case was about a big, large construction company that made promises it never intended to keep to get a $250 million contract. And because they didn't want to keep their promises or even try to keep their promises, my guy got very seriously injured. Um, and that was essentially what I, I didn't say that to the jury in, in that way. But I was I, I would hope that when they answered, if you ask them the question after my opening statement, what the case is about, that's what they would say. That's certainly what I was thinking. And so that, you know, I, I always, I talk to my, you know, our firm is pretty big now. We got about 40 lawyers and, uh, you know, they'll come, they'll have me speak to them and, I, and I'll say, what did the defendant do wrong? And they'll, oh, they violated this rule of regulation or they did this, you know, they were careless in this way. I said, no, 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 no. I didn't ask you that. I asked you, what did they do wrong? Like, if I could explain to my 10 year old, what did you do wrong? 
And, and so I'm a big believer that every trial is a morality play. And I, I think when we look at cases, certainly when I look at cases, this is why I hate trying car accident cases, because there's no real, I mean, you can, if someone's drinking and driving, you can certainly make that into a morality play, but you know, most times someone that's rear-ended or blew a stop sign or, you know, was going 75 and a 65, it's hard to make the case that that's immoral. And you probably wouldn't anyways, because most of the jurors have done it. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly right. I mean, we were talking about this on a recent episode. And it's one of the lessons I remember learning from Artemis Malikpour and David Ball of be careful not to present the defendant as doing something that everybody on that jury does and now make them afraid that god forbid if i do this thing i'm already doing someone's going to try to sue me for tens of millions of dollars yeah when i say what did you do what did the defendant do wrong it, it really is helpful in product and construction cases trucking cases you can make it that way especially if this is some institutional negligence but you want to find something that you can explain to attempt to a 10 year old like my, my it's great that you have young kids because if you if my son can't understand what the defendant did wrong, I know I'm going to have trouble in front of a jury. If he can understand it, or better yet, if I can just tell him what they did and he can say that's wrong, then I think I got a good case. So what did you do in, in this particular case, Andy? What did you do to highlight what the defendant did wrong in your opening? You know, I, I start out by saying, listen, in, con in the construction industry, because it was a construction case, uh, in the construction industry, promises matter. I, I do a rule of threes. I said in the construction industry, promises matter. In the construction industry, contracts matter. And in the construction industry, when you have a promise regarding to worker safety, those really matter. So let me tell you what happened. And then I go into the story. I put there was a, it was actually a joint venture that I sued. And so I introduced these three large, and they I, I got things from there. They, they had to put a bid. This was a public contract. So they had to bid it publicly. And in the contract, in their bid, they talk about how what the commitment is to safety and how safety conscious they were. And I said, you know, and so he, there they were. You know, we need to go back to, you know, 2011, and the, the Mass Department of Transportation put the a contract out to bid, and it was a it was a big contract. People want it was a 250 million dollar contract. So right away, I'm anchoring, and it also is not just anchoring. What I told the judges, I'm well, that's the motive. I'm saying that they're lying to get this contract. They, the jury needs to know the motive. Uh, and so the $250 million contract and these three big largest construction companies in the in the state, you know, because they all in their bid, they we're the biggest contractor in this, and we're the biggest, you know. So I used quotes from their bid. And I said, and you know, they made all these promises with regard to safety. And so, you know, I just went, I took the jury through. They said we're we're the safe. We have a commitment to safety. It's a culture for us. It's you know it's not just paper. Based on that, telling the, the, the mass department, the taxpayers essentially, that how safe that they were going to be, they get the contract. And in the contract, they made these promises in the safety bubble. You know, and I went through all of their glowing safety stuff, and then I went through their safety manual, and. And so then I said, because I don't think in an opening you want to tell the jury the defendant did something wrong. I, I really don't want, as much as I wanted them to think that, defendant did this wrong. I, I said, listen, this case is one of the other things I have about openings. The jury will not accept your view of the case, but the jury will accept that the issues that they need to resolve from you. They trust you more on that. So I never tell the jury, at least maybe till the end, but I always pose it as a question. And so one, I, I said, and I, I got the promises. And, you know, I, I use sort of the anchoring part. I, I standard, I, I went and we weren't supposed to because this was still during COVID, but I did it anyways. I moved to one side of the jury box and I said, we're going to ask you to compare these promises that you just saw. And then I walked on the other side versus the conditions in the field. What, what they said versus what they did. Exactly. What they said versus what, but what they promised. Because promising is much more of a moral question. What they said and what they did is okay, but what they promised and what and what the conditions were in the field. And so I said, whereas they promised to follow OSHA, you know, and then I would show an OSHA violation. So it's it's funny we've we've got a, a case right now, and you know, that kind of stuff look always looks kind of familiar, and it's similar. I mean, it's a it's a company that made a ton. Of promises to the state of South Carolina about safely transporting medically vulnerable people and what they promised versus versus how they acted and what they actually did and what that says about them. 
um, are two totally different things on about an $82 million contract. So yep. I, I hope it, from, from what you're telling me, it's kind of affirming in the sense of like, all right, man, if we're, if we're doing something close to kind of what Andy was doing, <laughs> we're on the right tracks, you know, just keep the sucker on the rails, but sorry to, sorry to jump in. Well, keep going, that's okay. And then, and so I, I, I said, you know, there, they promised to do this, but you know, they have these scaffolds. My guy fell off a scaffold. And I went through and explained why all of the, you know, I went through, I had some pictures, not of my, ironically, I didn't have the pictures of the scaffold that my guy fell off of because no one took it, which I argued was, you know, because they didn't want pictures. But my guy was, this was an historic project. So my guy was taking pictures anyways. So luckily for me, I had pictures of all these scaffolds that had serious violations. And I explained to him, I said, you know, they're supposed to, they're saying they're keeping workers safe. They're complying with OSHA, but you see this scaffold and it has a big, you know, it was only supposed to be a two. I showed them the OSHA regulation. This is the thing they promised to follow. And this is a, you know, it says anything bigger than two inches, you can't have a gap in the scaffold. And well, this is, you know, feet. And that's not the only problem because you see the hole down there. If someone fell off the scaffolding, then they'd be going down into the hole or they get impaled by a ladder. And so, you know, I went through all that stuff. And then I said, so when you hear about the conditions of these scaffolding, and by the way, no inspections, of the scaffolds, which are required. So I went through that and I said, and then I, the, the punchline was, you know, and this is close as I get to arguing or saying what the defendant did wrong. You got to, you got to ask yourself your question. Did, did, did the defendant really ever intend to keep these promises or were they just there to get the contract? And is it okay for a company? So this is the question the jury thinks it's they're answering. Is it okay for a company to make promises in order to get the contract with no intention of keeping it? That's and if they do, like that a lot. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, what I'm really saying is that they, they, you know, but I'm asking the rhetorical question. That's really good. And, and, and I, you know, that, I think the jury, my guess is if you ask that jury, I, you know, actually some of them contacted me afterwards, but I'm not allowed to ask about the liberations of Massachusetts. Um, if you ask that jury what the case was about, they would write, well, this is about a company you know, the question we got to answer is whether this company kept, you know, made these promises. I mean, they knew they made the promises because they see the contracts right in front of their face. Right. And that's the theme. And then, you know, that was my opening. And I, I didn't talk that much about damages. I know that's somewhat controversial, but I really wanted them to focus on the uh, on the immorality of the defendant. And, I, you know, I did talk about the effect that it had on, but I understate that. I wanted my my client to be the star on that. When it, as you're talking about it, I'm already in a position, I'm already leaning toward wanting to do something about it, right? Like I'm already in a position where, you know, I'm wanting to say, yeah, just w- once you tell me what the damages are, I, I get it. It's the, there's a lot of justification in place already before you even tell me what this foreseeable harm was. Um, I mean, I'm already leaning toward wanting to do something about it. The other thing that I've used, not in this trial, um, but I used it in a bar fight case that I tried it's like 10 years ago, which means I'm getting really old. And I really liked it. And I've used it in a couple of other trials. But this was more of a, that was another one where it was, a, it, to me, the case wasn't about a bar fight. But if the case was about a bar fight, I think I'd probably lose. My guy said, you know, my guy's a 42-year-old engaged guy. What the hell is he doing at a bar at 1230 anyways, getting into a fight? But it was a, this was, a, that was a case about a, a, bar company. This was a company that that had 23 bars throughout the city of Boston that made promises to get the the lucrative liquor licenses that they didn't intend to follow. And one of the things I did is that night I did a decision tree. Like I went through the night. It was a it was a bar fight. And my there was 30 minutes of notice. And what I did is that each time I said, had they followed the rules, so at 12.05, like one of the guy, one of the guys that was involved in the fight refuses to move and tells the bartender to get him a fucking drink. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's like notice one that this guy's a jackass and probably shouldn't be in the bar. Right. So I and I, I said, had they simply just followed the rules and, and done what they promised to do, my guy wouldn't have had to teach himself how to eat again. And, and then and that, you know, that picks up the that sort of connects the defendant's conduct to some. Now you have to have a very serious injury for that. But I, I I went through like six times and had the defendant simply kept their promises and follow the rules that they were promised that they promised to do in order to get this license, my guy wouldn't have woken up three months later thinking he was 19 years old when he was 42. 
or he would have been able to recognize his kids when he got up. You know, I, I went through all like six different times throughout that night. I think that's a very effective way to link the defendant's choices with your client's harm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's giving them causation right. without having to explain causation. And the other thing is when you try it, and this is really important, I think, in construction and product liability cases, the easier it is for the defendant to to avoid the incident, the less costly, the, le- the more simple it is, the more likely the jury is going to accept your version of what's reasonable. Right? If, 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 if it sounds really complicated what they had to do in order to avoid this incident, you know, that's not you know, kicking the guy out at 12.05 wasn't, didn't seem like that unreasonable to me when he tells the bartender to, you know, he refuses a request and tells him to get him a fucking drink. You know, I, I think there it, was, it, is. it didn't seem that unreasonable, you know, and, 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 and then it was a bunch of, I mean, I don't know, try my 2012 case uh, on, on a podcast, but that's another <laughs> technique that I've used. Yeah. I think can you, you're marrying the defendant's choices with your, with the, and it's not, it's not with the injury. Like when, when I said to the jury, you know, my guy didn't have, wouldn't have to teach himself how to eat again because he had, you know, he, when he woke up from coma, he hadn't eaten. And he, he, he was going to testify. Actually, he didn't remember it. His fiance was going to testify after him. Like we had video of him learning how to, they had, you know, they're putting the applesauce in his mouth uh, and him spitting it out. Like we had video, we had a very good video of that. So it's just, you know, that's stark. In fact, one of the jurors, I wish he kept the mouth shut, but I remember, we won anyway, so it didn't make a difference. But one of the jurors actually excused herself from the jury because she said she felt so bad for the guy after the opening. So maybe it was too fa- too effective. I mean, the point being the, the way you were able to fuse those issues together in a really effective way is the, yeah. is the big takeaway for me. Andy, let me ask you, going back yeah. to the going back to the construction case. Yep. You're done with the opening, defense gives their open. What did you do in terms of order of proof? Who was your first witness? So, you know, and I think that's very, very important. And I give a lot of thought to it. It's very important. Your first witness is very important. One of the things I agree with David Ball on is the trials about what you say is about, right? So my case is about promises. All I called the first witness was the retired project manager of this, of the construction site. And the first, you know, aside from his name, the fact that he used to work there and he's retired now, I got right into the bid, right into the contract. So now the jury, and you know, I, 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 the, before I even got that, would you agree with me, right? So what did I say to the jury? In the construction industry, promises matter. In the construction industry, contra- <laughs> contracts matter. In the construction industry, contra- promises that relate to safety matter. I asked him those questions. Was he going to say no? And I didn't do, I didn't litigate this case. I was brought in to try it. So I didn't, you know, these questions I probably would ask in, in deposition. But I felt pretty comfortable, even though they, what's he going to say? No, they don't matter. You know, I promises, contracts, bleh, you know, I mean, and, and so, you know, I mean, I felt pretty safe doing that. And right away, so now they've gotten the, the, the openings. And then the first witness is agreeing with the theme of my case. So that was, you know, and then I went through all the promises. And then I went through the safety manual. There was a bunch of other things. Then I, I started staining the defendant because... There's all these documents that they, so the contract required them to keep inspection documents, but they didn't have any. And so, you know, I had him on the stand. So, you know, not only are they promising to keep things safe, but there's, you know, there's, and I went through all of them and I, and I went through like, you know, they were supposed to be monthly inspection uh, reports, weekly inspection reports, and then daily scaffold inspection reports that's required under OSHA. And so, Andy, I, I know you're you're a big believer in, in visuals and helping folks understand and, and demonstrating the, the evidence to them, various exhibits. When you were going through talking about all the things that, that they didn't do, were were you providing any visual component to those things, be it a running tally, being it, it marks going up on a board? How did, how did you handle that? Just to, or did it matter? I didn't, probably should have, but one of the things I wanted to do, I am a big believer in visuals, but I, the visuals I showed them the most were for me important, which is the contract or in the bid and then the pictures of the scaffolding. And those are the things that I really showed them the most. The stay on theme. Yeah. 
I, I don't know if you know who Rodney Jew is, but I find him brilliant. And he tells the story that when Steve Jobs came back to, to Apple um, his for the second time, they had 32 different products and they were flailing. The Apple was close to bankruptcy at that point. They were really losing money head over fist. And Steve Jobs says, we're going to make four. He cut out 28, whatever the number is, 28 production lines. And we're going to focus on four and do it really well. And I think that's a very instructive sort of analogy for our trials. Sometimes we want to make this case. We have the burden of knowledge. We have the burden of, of, of facts. Um, and sometimes you can over inundate. You don't want to go down. I try to stay disciplined. My case is about this. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about anything else but this. Uh, I'm not going to go down rabbit trails. And it's hard. I mean, sometimes I violate my own rules and it takes some discipline because we we love to cut up on witnesses, which is another thing I'll get to you later. But I, there was one witness I was ready to cut up on. And then just because you can have a good cross doesn't mean you should. But I try to stay disciplined to my what I think are the central keys of my case. And if it's not related to that, then I'm not going to try to spend much time with any on it. So, Andy, at, at what point in the trial or, or with which witness did you begin shifting uh, some of the focus to the harm, the consequences that, that came from these broken promises? Really, I played my there were two damage witnesses. One was the, his treating surgeon that did all nine or I'm sorry, he had nine total operations. He had seven spinal oper you know, cer uh, cervical and lumbar spine operations. So I played the video of the surgeon and I played I, and I called my guy. Part of that was I was kind of bound by my witness list and because I was brought in to try this case. So I was I would have that's not something I'd probably say is a great strategy. It worked in this case. Now, they weren't really contesting damages. Um, and, and so in, in some, you know, I had my guy up there, you know, I mean, he had to deal with they, they, the, their big defense was comparative negligence, which I thought was the jury did not find comparatively negligent. I thought their comparative negligence argument was was weak at best. But I, I, I would have called his daughter. He had a really uh, involved and articulate daughter. I would have called her. I mean, you want to and, and I didn't have my guy whine. You know, I just had my guy. Take him through his day and the things that he had to do in order to survive. And, you know, I mean, now you're talking about getting visual. Like he has to, he has to catheterize himself every time he pees. I had him bring in the catheter and not just to, and, and you know, every man on the jury is like, you know, crossing his legs. Um, yeah, I immediately went back to being 16 years old in the hospital after a jaw surgery, you know? It's, yep. If you ask me, what do I remember about the jaw surgery? It's not the jaw surgery that was fine. It was the it was the other part. Yep. It was terrible. Yeah, but it was also the catheter was so big. Like he would explain how sometimes it was really hard. You can't put it in your pocket and it sticks out. And then people ask him, "Well, what's that for?" And then he has to explain that. You know. And I had him tell a couple of vignettes. Um, he had a great vignette about uh, he was in church uh, for Christmas Eve and he had been going to this church for twenty years and. He, he was at that point had to, because when you catheterize yourself a lot, you have to, you can't do it all the time you'll get infected. So he had a bag and he didn't want it, but with the bag, he had to wear sweatpants and he wasn't about to wear sweatpants to a Catholic church. So he put a cap and put regular pants on and he goes up at the end of the service to get communion and the cap pops and the urine comes pouring down his leg all over the church floor, which, you know, it's like these stone marble floors and people are walking by him in the pew and there's just a puddle of urine on the floor. And he never went back to that church again because he was so embarrassed. Now, you don't ever forget that. Oh, I might not. I, I might never forget you telling me that. It's so yeah. Bad, I mean, he, he had some really, he was great. He was great because he was very Irish in the sense that he was matter of fact about it. And I, I, we, I got an email from a juror. The, I think the verdict came out on Thursday. I think I got a Saturday email saying she'll never forget his face and what he had to go through. I mean, it, you know, so he made an impression on him. Now, and, you know, it's easy for a lawyer to say, hey, it was me. Look how great I am. But that, he was a great, he was a great 
damage witness. He had some issues on liability because he just wanted to explain to the jurors, this is an old lesson. He wanted to talk about a guy with the burden of knowledge because this guy had been a Mason for 35 years. His father was a Mason. And I'm like, John, the jurors don't need know how to don't need to know how to remove stone and replace stone and how to drill a hole into a stone. They don't need to know how to do that. I had to work with him a lot on that, but on the damages, he was fantastic. And I showed him pictures of his spine. You see the blatant screws. I mean, you know, what are they going to say? Andy, as, as far as the spine surgeon, how many of those uh, seven spine surgeries did this particular surgeon perform? All seven. Was there? Was there any question that came up either in your mind or that the defense raised um, or for your client as to the reasons that he needed all seven and, and why perhaps three or four shouldn't have done the trick? The real reason we couldn't get into evidence, the real reason he needed on the cervical side was that the workers' comp initially, he wanted to go initially from C2 to C7. Workers' comp only approved C2 to C3. <laughs> so the defense didn't touch it. I didn't really deal with it, um, except to say he talked about adjacent segment disease. And once you fuse one part of the spine, he was really good at explaining. It's like, you know, if you have five workers doing the work and then you lay off a worker, there's more stress on those other four workers. Well, it's the same with the spine. You, once you lay off that, when you fuse that disc, you're you're firing it or laying it off. And then all the work, and then it stresses the other disc. And then that one pops and then... You know, so he did a good job of that. That's a much better analogy than than anything I've heard or tried to come up with. That's yeah, really although I I try to get him to use the tires. Like if you just drive, if you tilt your car on one side and drive on one set of tires, those tires will wear out quicker than the other tires. You know, but he he did it. He pulled it. It was good. He was good. So um, let's let's stay on that comp question for a second because when we were first talking about the case, I was trying to figure out how you got around comp exclusivity, which I presume is is somewhat similar yep. up there. So it wasn't a co-worker or his own company's negligence that caused the, the harm. Thankfully for me, he was a he was the Mason subcontractor to the joint venture. So that was and it would made it really easy in this particular case because usually general contractors, at least in Massachusetts, and the joint ventures of the world don't do anything. They're purely subbing everything out and managing the project. But they actually retained where this guy fell. They built the scaffold and, and were supposed to inspect it. And that so that worked out really well for me that way. And you didn't have to worry about anything like upstream employers or statutory employers? So in Massachusetts, you have to employ the – it's an and, so conjunction. Um, you have to employ the guy and pay his comp. They didn't need – they actually met neither one of them. So there's Got no it. upstream immunity for the, for the joint venture. Enjoy it. That's 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 good. I like that. Um, it's interesting. And just a, a quick aside, I mean, South Carolina, I think back 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, they they a lot of the law, the way I read it, it it really went out of its way to make sure these injured workers were covered by comp. But in doing so, fast forward 50 to 75 years, and now it's used offensively slash assertively and and, and it defensively and offensively by you know civil defendants. Uh, to say, no, nah, we, we would have been on the hook for comp. And because we would have been on the hook for comp, that's your exclusive remedy. It's yeah, just a, no, a I, different I, regime. Yeah, no, that, that stinks. Um, so, Andy, who did uh, who did the defense call during their case in chief? Interestingly, they called – so this actually is a nice segue into – they called a witness that was his foreman. And it was a, in my opinion, a big mistake by the defense lawyer, not necessarily to call him, but, you know, he, and he doubled down on it in closing, but he promised this guy was going to sink his case. And I had a, I was worried about him because my client had told me that they didn't get along. They didn't like each other. He was really mad at my client because he got in trouble for this accident, not report it because he didn't report it. Um, initially, my guy fell. They never contested causation, which I always thought was amazing because my guy fell and went to the hospital complaining of an ankle sprain and didn't complain of neck and back pain until three weeks later. So this wasn't a big incident at first to them. And so he was really mad at him. And I had this cross planned out. But and this is where the discipline comes in. 
because I had a big cross going after him and talking about all the time. Like he was, he had said some things that were clearly and demonstrably not true. He basically was saying that my guy shouldn't have been on the interior of the scaffolding, that it was not, they weren't supposed to use it. It was the joint ventures, only the joint venture employees. That's what he testified to. Then we had a picture of him using the interior scaffolding, right? Um, and I had more than one of him using the interior scaffolding. So I was ready. I was ready to tear him up, right? But when you tear a witness up, you're telling the jury that you're afraid of them. And sometimes you got to do it. I mean, if they say something that hurts the essence of your case, you probably got to do it. But I tell people, just because you can do a cross doesn't mean you should. And when I, first place, I, 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 so I paid attention. He came in on a Friday out of what he came in in the middle of my case because the guy was going on vacation. And so he came in, I remember it was on a Friday morning. And because of COVID, this accident happened in 2014. I was supposed to try this in September of 2019. And then my guy had his ninth surgery. So he, you know, and then it got kicked into the COVID period. So this was being tried a lot later. (laughs) This was tried almost seven years and change after the, you know, the incident. And that by that time, the, the guy was retired. And I don't think he cared anymore. You know, obviously, he wasn't as angry at my guy anymore. In fact, the only reason he was angry, he was angry at the defense counsel for making him come in on a Friday before his vacation. And I kind of got that sense. Like I noticed in the courtroom, he was going to be the first guy out, which I, you know, I told him I, I, I agreed to that just to ingratiate myself with him. And I could tell that he was angry. He wouldn't, the defense lawyer tried to talk to him. He would blow him off. And I'm like, oh, maybe this guy won't be as bad. And when he testified, his direct examination lasted 20 minutes at most. And he didn't really say anything that hurt me. It was like one little minor thing that hurt me. And so my cross was, again, sticking to my theme. I got rid of my cross. I didn't do any of it. I just want to make sure we're clear, sir. What you're, he contradicted my guy. He says the, the scaffold was just one plank across the middle. And my guy said it was a couple of planks in the gap. Who cares? Right? Like, why does that make a difference? I'm not going to cross him on that. I said, sir, I just want to make sure we're clear. The board, and he fought as to whether or not it was a scaffold. So I didn't use the word scaffold. Mr. Rooney fell off a board. Is that right? Yes. And there was gaps on both sides of that board. Is that right? That's right. And Am I correct in understanding that uh, that that board was set up by the joint venture, right? Right. Wasn't set up by you. Wasn't set up by any of your co-employees. That's correct. That's correct. So what he fell off of was created by the joint venture. Correct. Correct. Nothing further. Sit down and shut up. And he had promised in his opening this guy was going to deliver a devastating blow. And then in closing, he told the jury that the case didn't really start until he testified, which I thought was a big mistake because it was a big nothing burger. And in fact, probably helped me. Right? It just reiterated that the joint venture set up a scaffolding that had gaps, big gaps on both sides. So, you know, I, I, I was, it took some discipline. It took some guts. It was, you know, and, and in some ways I had a, the referring lawyer in the courtroom every day who was a big referrer to our firm. I had a bunch of lawyers in there, you know, and so you're telling me you're going to, you know, I got all this stuff on this guy and it takes some discipline and and confidence just to, but, you know, lawyers, let me assure all of the, the people that you like the sound of your own voice more than the jurors do. So if you could be shorter, do it. And that was, that was a prime example. And then they called their expert who was, they called an expert who had, he actually had COVID at the time, so he testified remotely. And the defense lawyer, for some reason, thought it was my issue to, to work on the logistical things to get his expert. Like, what are, what are you talking about? I don't, it's your, your, your job, not mine. What do I care? I'm not helping you. It's not my job to help you. So he had him testify on this, like, small little computer screen. And people, it was the Zoom, because the court, because of COVID, the courts had to be, it was a public trial, so they had to add Zoom. So it was the public Zoom the experts yelling at some of the other people to shut up in front of the jury. Like he looked like an old cratchety guy that had COVID, which is what he was. But he gave a big because he was he was precluded from testifying on certain things. And my cross of him was three minutes. 
which basically said that the joint venture was the creating employer and the controlling employer. And you'd agree with that. And that was it. He contradicted my guys, my expert. I, I called in a scaffolding expert that said that, you know, I mean, sometimes you get involved in these details, but my, you know, my expert said that falls off of scaffolding were the number one leading cause of injuries and in construction sites. And he wanted to contradict him. This is a stupid. Okay? He wanted to contradict him by saying that falls were the number one cause, not falls off a of scaffolding. Oh, okay. I'm not going to sit there and spend wasted like what? Who cares? <laughs> like, why does that make a difference, right? But you know, I mean, some people in my younger years, I probably would have fought him on it because he contradicted my expert. I got to fight him on it. Why? Like what? The you know, again, you don't want to fall. That's a product line that that Apple was making, right? You don't want to. It had nothing to do with the promises made in the contract. <laughs> in fact, they didn't keep these promises, and this scaffold violated OSHA. It had nothing to do with that. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't, my cross of him was three or four minutes, which says something to the jury. He called two witnesses. My cross-examination of them combined couldn't have been more than 10 minutes. And so what am I saying to the jury about how much his witnesses are hurting me? Uh, that was a thing, especially with the, the Kadurka, the, the, the foreman. I, yeah, I, I thought that was a, a very important move. And I called him out on it. And in my closing, he doubled down on it. And then I said, what did Kadurka say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? You heard my cross. The, the joint venture put up the scaffold and he fell off of it. So, you know, and then, you know, then they're like, that's essentially what he said. That's a, that's a perfect segue moment. Andy, walk us through closing what you were working to accomplish, what you wanted to leave the jurors with as they entered deliberations. So closing for me was... I, you know, I never, I try never to miss an opportunity to take a shot at the, at the defense lawyer. I believe all trials are morality plays and also all trials are a credibility contest between you and the defense lawyer. So like the defense lawyer never showed the contract to the jury. And so I pointed that out, not at any witnesses, he didn't show the contract to the jury. And so one of the things I said is like, it's like the joint venture wants to pretend this contract doesn't exist. And it, they never showed it to any witness. He never showed it to you in his closing. But here it is. It, it, but doesn't that tell you something? <laughs> and, and there was a bunch of guys that said that they never read it. Well, how are you going to keep the promises in a contract that you never read? Like one of them said, well, yeah, we can slough our, our responsibilities to one of the witnesses said, oh, no, the, the subcontractor is responsible for that. We can pass off the safety. Contract said specifically, the general contractor the joint venture cannot pass off the responsibility, you know, so they, you know, I, it was kind of, he was, you know, but I, so I, I attacked him that way. And I said, you know, and this is Greg Cusimano and Ed Lazarus always talk about loss framing. Well, what do contracts mean if you don't enforce them, right? That's the jury has to know why are they enforcing this principle? And I talked about the loss framing. Well, the, you know, those contracts have to matter. If you make a promise, especially in right, and jurors believe, I mean, focus groups believe this, over and over and over again. If you make a promise in a contract, they, that, that's a, it's, I don't say it's sacred because that's overstating it, but it's it, it, it pretty damn important. And then I wanted, I didn't spend a ton of time on liability. Now I spent time on, on damages, but I, you know, I attacked the defendant because they didn't show the contract to anybody. I showed them the contract and I showed them that, you know, what's been uncontradicted here. These promises are what's uncontradicted. The scaffold violated OSHA regulations, whether you believe Kadurka who says there was one plank or my guy that says there was a couple of planks doesn't make a difference. Either way, it violated OSHA. And either way, they created it. They own it. And I and I went through the inspections because they didn't, you know, it was a big deal. The contract says they have to have inspections. And I I did the math for them. There should have, there was weekly inspections. So there should have been this project had been going over for a little over a year, or no, a little under a year. I did the weeks. That's 48 weekly inspections that they can't find all of a sudden. Right. There's 12 monthly inspections. They're supposed to be daily. In fact, more than daily. At the beginning of every shift, there's supposed to be scaffold inspections. That's hundreds. And they can't find any of it. So I thought that was a big, that was a big thing. And then I went into the damages, which I think is the most um, and how I asked for money. Because we we're relatively new. Can you ask for money in South Carolina, Kenny? You can. Oh, good. There's some there's some caveats, but the answer is yes. So the, the advice I might give you, they actually took it up, and I I was uh, 
the judge said no the way he asked for money was appropriate I actually told him I was going to ask for In money. short version you're not supposed to substitute your opinion for oh good the jury all right good and well, at the I same time the idea that you can't provide them ways to arrive at numbers um I mean you, you can 100 do that you can't just say this case is worth this much you know and, and basically work to substitute your I opinion. think you shouldn't do that anyway so and I I never say so the way I do it is is uh and this is the first time I did it and I have to give all the credit in the world to Ed Lazarus because he thought of this you know I wanted the jury to think I was asking for about 20 million for future pain and suffering and I'm like well you know my guy was 56 or 57 at the time that's a lot of money per year even per day it worked out to like 24 2500 I forget what it was and I'm like that's a lot you know he just that seems like a lot and he'd been through hell and back but this is the way I did it and I, and I can um I can tell you I it felt really good now this only works if your guy makes a lot of money per hour so my guy was a union mason so union guys in Boston make a ton of money like my guy made 80 bucks my guy in 2014 made it, uh, close to 80 bucks an hour you round it up it's 80 bucks an hour and so uh, you know what I do is I started off I go this is the medical bills it was seven hundred and seventy six thousand dollars in medical bills his lost wages there's five hundred thousand dollars in lost wages and now you know those are the things that are easy for you they're really uncontradicted um ironically the jurors gave me more on medical bills and more on lost wages than I asked for which actually ended up being a, an issue I wish they didn't but they did and I think they just forgot to write down the numbers but that's a, that's neither here nor there and I said but this is not that's just that's just getting it back to zero and, and then you're going to hear and the judge is going to tell you about you know the human losses how the effect it's had on them and and the judge is going to tell you there's no formula uh there's no formula under the law that you can you can use that's going to be given to you to try to figure this out and and you know and and, and in speaking to jurors and speaking to people it, it's it's the hardest thing that you can do because there is no formula that that's approved under the law um and so jurors wonder well how you know what's what's fair what's reasonable how do you, how do you go about doing this I mean you know and I you know and so I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a way and, and and to to help you with that you you know and I always say it's just, it's just a suggestion I again in my beginning of the closing I always empower the jury and how important they are in the community I said you know you guys can do this with as you wish and I always use this line if you've noticed every time you come into the courtroom I had to stand just you and the judge no one stands for me when I come into the courtroom I stand for you you don't stand for me and that's a sign of the importance that you have in this community and so I went through it and I said but you know one of the things that you'll have in evidence is his life expectancy and I go through his life expectancy and if you add that into days and you know you do this into days and then I do the math room and then you add that into hours this is what I did so he has whatever I forget the number now 137,000 hours would make that number up uh left in his life and that you know and I explained to him that that's the average he could live more than that but he also could live less than that and the judge will tell you that when you're talking about future damages there's some level of you're never going to be certain you don't have to be certain you, you can play the averages this is the average and so some people would say you know because I had my guy one of the things I talked about is how much he loved being a mason and there were things that he had built like if you've ever come to Boston there's this tour that you can it's a walking tour that you can take yourself around Boston and these these red bricks that take you throughout all the various historical places in Boston well he helped build that he was one of the guys that laid the bricks down there and you know and there's the old North Church he and there's a bell there and he he they had to replace the bricks and he, you know so he talked about the pride he had and looking at bridges and buildings that you know he loved his job it took him pride and so I and so I, this came completely from Ed Lazarus and you know so some people say well you know he has this many hours left what's fair compensation per hour let's just try to break it down simply and uh, you know I said some people would say well geez he got he got eighty dollars an hour for a job that he liked that he really liked and gave himself esteem and you know he got he could take a break from he got vacation from he knew he was going to retire with dignity from well if so if they're paying him eighty dollars an hour for a job that he that he loved or they liked and took a lot of pride from so at least give him made this the job and I, and I say because of the defendant's choices they gave him a new job a job that he doesn't want a job that he would give anything 
to quit. But this job is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. This job doesn't give him any lunch breaks, doesn't give him any vacation days, doesn't give him any sick days. In fact, every day is a sick day for him now. He just has to show up to this job every day. And the day he's going to retire from this job is the day they bury him because these injuries aren't going anywhere. In fact, they're probably going to get worse. And so some people would say, and I went through, you know, this job requires you to catheterize yourself every time you got, I didn't say got to take a piss, but you, you know, that's what it boils down to. This is a job that requires you to take an hour to get out of bed because he would talk about this process again. You know, I explained all the, all the stuff about his job. And so people would say, well, geez, it, it, he got paid $80 an hour for, for a job that he, that he liked. He should at least get $80 an hour. This job stinks. No one in their right mind would want it. And I said it that way. This job stinks. He doesn't want it. You know, and, and I say some people would say, well, if you got $80 an hour, I always give the jurors a range of three. Some people would say, well, and I do the math for it. So at $80 an hour, it was like 18. Ironically, I did the math wrong, which was dumb. But I was off by like a couple hundred thousand. How that happened, I don't know. But I went back after the post-trial motion. I'm like, shit, I got the number wrong. Um, and uh, you were like, judge, I mean, they got they got the past economics wrong because I got the math wrong. They were just trying to make it right. That's you know, they, they, they had it right. This is my yeah. fault. Yeah. And so I said, and then some people say, well, if he got $80 an hour for, for a job that, you know, he liked, he should at least get time and a half. I mean, this is worse than working on Sunday, which you get time and a half for, right? And so I, I did it $120 an hour. And then I, some people say, well, you know, you're buying bulk. This is a 24 hour, seven day. You can't pay them. And so it's sixty dollars. So I did sixty, eighty, and one twenty, and those are the numbers that I did. And I did the same thing for past pain and suffering, but I only offered sixty, and they gave me more than I asked for in past pain and suffering. I loved it because you what, number one, you're just giving them a suggestion, trying to help them do the very difficult job. Number two, you're giving them choices. Number three, which is different than the done before, because in the past I've asked for daily per diem, but I'm the truth of the matter is I'm just picking a number out of my ass. This was related to evidence that was in the case. And it anchored them to a solid concrete number that they had heard before, which I really liked. And they essentially adopted my middle number. They gave me 18 million. I think the number on the board, it should have been 20 something, but the, the number on the board was like 18.8. I think they, they, gave them, they, they gave them 18. And then they went a little bit above my number on for past pain and suffering, they went from, I think it was 3.5 to 5.5, if I remember right. And it, when I did the past pain and suffering, that was my entree into showing the met. I picked out about seven or eight medical records and highlighted it about how frustrated he was. When is this pain going to end? You know, that kind of stuff. And so I, I it was an, it waited because otherwise I hadn't shown him any medical records ever. You know, I didn't have him talk about medical records. This was a uh, this was an uncontested trial, so in some sense, it went in cleaner. So that's the that's how I handled the closing. And then at the end, I, I say this in almost every close. In fact, I'm as soon as I got a trial coming up in a month where I I almost and almost especially in cases like this, I say at the end of this case, he's asking you for a verdict, and he's asking for a verdict for a very simple reason, and asking you to enforce a very simple principle. I said, you know, we we teach our children at a young age that if you make a promise and you don't keep it you need to be held accountable. You're going to face the consequences. I go, that principle applies to my kids, my 10-year-old, my 14-year-old. That principle applies to you and me, and it even applies to big corporations, and I point to the council's table, like this joint venture. And I, I said, all Mr. Rooney asked for, all that he asked for you to do is to hold their, hold them accountable for their, you know, for making promises they never intended to keep. And that was, that was my punchline. And I sat down. And I love the, for promises they never intended yep. to keep. And it's one thing to break a promise. It's another thing to make, to make the promise because you want the dollars that come with it, but with no intention whatsoever of ever keeping it. And that's the immorality. That's the thing where if I say to a 10 year old, if you make a promise, you never, never really intend to keep it. That's like lying. It's not much different than lying. They'll say it's wrong. That's why I try to encourage lawyers to look for the immorality in the case. Andy, well done, my friend. Go ahead. No, and that, that's it. I, I will contradict a little with David Ball. 
I think if you have a texting and driving case, which everyone's done, including myself, I think you can make that a little bit of an, they're putting their own selfish needs above the safety of other people. And, and the way, you know, it's, I'm glad you bring that up because the, the catch, the, but in the, in the approach is, but you know, when, when they do it and cause harm to somebody, yep. you know, they're responsible for it and they know they've got, they got to be held accountable for it. They yep. knew what they were doing. Yep. When they got on the phone, yep. they knew all these things and they still chose to do it. And that's part of the deal. Yep. I agree. I agree. So it's, I'm, I'm so glad we actually got to circle back to that because I was hoping we were going to get to talk about it before the podcast ended. And now we do. All right. Andy, speaking of your 10-year-old, your 14-year-old, and also I'm bringing up your wife who loved your last episode. Uh, <laughs> we told you that we were going to get you out at a certain time. We we're a minute shy of it. But listen, man, thank you so much. No for coming on and uh, and doing a part two. I, I love the episode we did on brain injury. I love the episode that we did today on a trial in a non-brain injury case. And um, and you're just, man, you're, you're a top-notch guy and a top-notch lawyer and, uh, and someone I continue to look up to. So thank you from South Carolina all the way up to Massachusetts, my friend. I appreciate it. I appreciate your kind words, Kenny. And you're doing great work with this stuff because this is this is, it's important to get out there. And uh, I hope that it's not barred to the defense. So they probably, I don't know if the hoods are listening in or not, but uh, (laughs) the hoods. Who who you learned one of your children. Real real quick. All right. I got a 10 year old or a 14 year old. My 10 year old. He's going to be 11 in a couple of weeks. I was standing right next to Bobby Hood in an airport trying to get back as my wife went into uh, labor 12 days early. It's the first time she's been early for anything in her life. And she went to labor 12 days early in the middle of a deposition I had with the hoods in Minneapolis. And I was standing right next to him in the airport going through security when I got a picture of my son being born. Oh, it was Jamie Hood. It wasn't Bobby. It was Jamie Hood. I'm sorry. It was Jamie Hood. Come back down to uh, hell. Come see me in Columbia. Go see those guys in Charleston. Charleston's got better food than than we do. But (laughs) stop in. Get a great meal. I'd much rather see you than the hoods. No offense. (laughs) You're You're on the right side of the V, man. You're too good. You're too good. All right, my friend. Listen, thank you so much you. Uh, for everyone out there. Today's guest has been Andy Abraham from Boston, Massachusetts. You've been listening to Best Practices with Kenny Berger, and we look forward to doing it again soon. Take care. <laughs>